Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We all react differently when we hear that a celebrity has died. If it's someone whose work has managed to touch us in a particular way, the loss can really, really hurt. Our idols aren't supposed to be life-sized. They're supposed to be bigger than that. Maybe not immortal, but somehow not subject to the day-to-day things that we have to deal with. It really, really bothered me when Joey Ramone died. It hurt when Kurt Cobain killed himself. And when Amy Winehouse OD'd, it affected me even though I wasn't what you'd call a big fan. A lot of people were similarly affected by the death of Scott Weiland. If you grew up in the 1990s, his was one of the great voices of that era. And even though you knew about all his problems with the drugs and the alcohol and the mental health issues and all the rest of it, you didn't want to believe that things might end up going very, very bad for him. But deep down, you kind of knew it, right? So what happened with him? And I'm not just talking about his final days. I mean, what happened to him over the years that put him on this path towards dying in the back of a tour bus? As I said, when we started this investigation, this is going to take a while. So, this is Scott Weiland, Part 2. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Scott Weiland and Stone Temple Pilots with Plush from the band's 1993 debut record, Core. It's apparently a song about death, inspired by a newspaper story about a girl who'd been found dead somewhere in San Diego. It won a Grammy for Best Hard Rock Performance and is still a standard part of radio station playlists around the world. And that's pretty much where we left things off at the end of part one. STP signing their major label record deal, going on tour, and then finding out that their lead singer had become a heroin addict while the band was selling millions of records. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. The second STP album was called Purple and was recorded in Atlanta during a break in the band's touring schedule. Scott's local dealer was a 25-year-old HIV-positive woman. Her stuff kept Scott from getting dope sick, which meant that the album was recorded rather quickly, four weeks. When Scott got back to L.A. in the spring of 1994, he wanted to try detox for the first time. The Exodus Recovery Center in Marina del Rey. He was about to check in when someone said, you know, that's a bad idea, dude. There are two major junkies already on the premises, and that will not help you kick your habit. The first of those junkies was Gibby Haynes of the Butthole Surfers, the guy who apparently introduced Scott to smack in the first place. The second was a 27-year-old guy from Seattle named Kurt Cobain. Within a few days, Kurt would escape from rehab, make his way home, and then shoot himself. This did not help Scott with his issues. Purple was preceded by a song STP gave the producers of a movie called The Crow. This was a film starring Brandon Lee, son of martial arts legend Bruce Lee. And Brandon, if you remember was accidentally shot when an improperly loaded prop gun went off, wounding him fatally in the abdomen. Despite the death of the star, the movie was completed and a soundtrack was released at the end of March of 1994, which was, as I mentioned, just as Scott was prepping for rehab. 
It's a great soundtrack, too. One of the best of the decade. It had The Cure and Nine Inch Nails and Rage Against the Machine and other big names. The STP song was written in the same style as songs on Core, and it was exactly what the fans wanted to hear. It became a hit while the band was still writing the second album. That's Big Empty from the Stone Temple Pilots, originally from the soundtrack of The Crow, but later included on the band's second album, Purple. Purple was released on June 7, 1994, and I remember when it came out thinking, wow, this sounds a lot different than the first album. Well, it did. It was less grunge and more straight-ahead alt-rock. Hype was such that the album debuted at number one on the charts in the U.S. and made it as high as number one in Australia, number two in Canada, number 10 in the U.K. So, yeah, things were looking good for STP. And despite a few rough patches, Scott Weiland seemed really, really happy. And on September 17, 1994, he and his longtime girlfriend Janina Costanda were married in a lavish ceremony in a rich area of Pasadena. Scott did a little coke in the limo with some of his groomsmen before the ceremony, but it was his wedding day. After the honeymoon, Scott and Janina bought that house, the house where they actually had the wedding, and began collecting antiques and cars. Here's a song for Purple about a bunch of phone calls he made to Janina while on tour and while hooked on heroin. He told her he wasn't using, which was a lie, of course, and even though he felt bad about lying, he knew he couldn't stop using By the end of 1994, rumors had begun to swirl about Scott's um, condition. Many of these rumors hinted at some kind of drug problem. In fact, there were all kinds of rumors pointing at all kinds of dark things. But even then, most people were surprised at what happened on Monday, May 15th, 1995 in Pasadena, California. At about 3.30 in the morning, Scott Weiland was picked up after driving away from the back of a seedy motel with his lights off. Nearby cops saw what they thought was a drug transaction. Well, guess what? They were right. When they caught up with Scott, the cops found a chunk of Mexican black tar heroin in Wyland's wallet. He spent the night in jail before his wife posted $10,000 in bail. Now, you would think that an experience would have some kind of straightening effect. But on the way home from jail in the couple's 65 Mustang, Scott demanded that his wife drive to his dealer's house. He needed to score. When she refused, Scott jumped out of the car while it was still moving at 15 or 20 miles an hour. When Janina refused to let Scott come home, he sought solace in, of all people, Courtney Love, who had a room at the Chateau Marmont Hotel on Sunset Boulevard. After preparing a tearful statement of remorse, Courtney called a local radio station in the middle of the night and read the statement live on air. I have a disease, it went. I want to say sorry to my friends, my band, my wife, and my family, and to the social ideals to which I have become a hypocrite. I ache to get well, to feel, and to make more music. Now, here's something rather rare. Wyland recorded this at about the same time he was getting busted. 
It was done on a cheap four-track recorder at the Chateau Marmont and is known as Chateau Mars. Scott Weiland recorded at the Chateau Marmont Hotel on Sunset Boulevard. This was the kind of thing he was working on while trying to get his act together. He'd also formed a side project called the Magnificent Bastards, a group that contributed a song to the Tank Girl soundtrack, which, by the way, was curated by Courtney Love, and also a John Lennon tribute album. Meanwhile, sensing that things were going down a bad road with Scott, the other three guys in STP hedged their bets and started making plans for making music without Scott. We'll get back to that and Scott's solo material in a bit, but first, we have to watch Stone Temple Pilots fall apart. The first time. That's next. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. This is part two of the most in-depth look at Scott Weiland you ever hear on this program. When the matter of Scott's May 1995 drug bust went to court, Weiland was told that if he completed a drug treatment program, he would be free to go without a criminal record. He agreed and spent part of that summer at a rehab facility in Colorado. By the end of August 1995, he was back in Los Angeles and back with the Stone Temple Pilots. A third album needed to be made. This time, the group decided to strip back things even further and maybe even give the record a glam-esque sort of feel. Wyland made a conscious attempt to stream David Bowie when working on the melodies and lyrics. There was plenty of money to go around, so STP rented a mansion that belonged to actor Jimmy Stewart in Santa Barbara where they could write in peace. It was thought that the isolation would do everyone, especially Scott, a lot of good. Well, no. A couple of times a week, he'd head down the Pacific Coast Highway into Los Angeles, where he'd score more coke and heroin. After the basics of the album were recorded on the West Coast, the band left for Atlanta to finish things off with producer Brendan O'Brien. Scott took a minder with him, but he soon wore him out, and another babysitter, a sober coach, had to be called in. When the album was finished, it carried the weird title of Tiny Music Songs from the Vatican Gift Shop. As different as Purple was from Core, Tiny Music was different still. Wyland's voice still had that grungy yarl, but he could also growl in new ways, and he could even sort of croon. Here's one of the singles. According to Scott, it's about a dancer who suffers a horrific gang rape who ends up falling in love because she can't let go of the pain. Okay, I, I told you at the beginning that we were going to encounter a lot of darkness in this program, and, well, here's another example. Lady Fisher, she has me on the bedroom wall. Lady Fisher, she has me on the bedroom wall. She has me cause she don't know nothing, don't know nothing. Now that you know what that song's about, you're never going to hear it in the same way again, are you? Tiny Music was released on March 26, 1996. Big radio hit, but not so much in the stores. It sold about a third of what Purple did and a quarter of the total they saw with Core. That means about two million copies. Meanwhile, Scott Weiland kept getting clean and relapsing. Between 1994 and 1997, he went to rehab 13 times 
And because he didn't follow through on dealing with his drug issues, the other three guys in STP decided to cancel a big chunk of the tour that had been planned to support Tiny Music through the rest of 1996 and into 1997. Our singer is a junkie, was the message, and we can't go on the road with him until he's well. Here's the actual statement. Our lead singer, Scott Wyland, has become unable to rehearse or appear for these shows due to his dependency on drugs. He is currently under a doctor's care in a medical facility. It's got nothing to do with exhaustion or dehydration or sore throat, the things that you typically hear about. This is very hard. We are deeply ashamed and very sorry for this terrible inconvenience. And we're really sorry. And we hope to see you soon and rectify the situation. None of us really know how, but there you have it. And that was it for STP, as Scott was concerned. He was out, especially after it was suggested that he pay some kind of restitution for the canceled dates out of his own pocket, which meant millions. And to make matters even worse, his marriage to Janina was over. She just couldn't take it anymore. What actually had happened was that Wyland had missed one of his mandatory drug counseling sessions, and police moved in to arrest him on April 23, 1996. But before the cops got there, Wyland's friends grabbed him and sent him to the hospital. From there, he was transferred to the medical unit of the L.A. County Jail. After a week, he was transferred to Impact House, a residential drug treatment facility for what was supposed to be a six-month stay. But then on June 26th, Wyland disappeared. An arrest warrant was issued, but before he could be found, Wyland turned up safe and sober at the Pasadena Municipal Court. His explanation was that he had left to talk to his wife about a personal problem. One dumb rumor was that he had bolted for Detroit so he could attend a KISS concert. Other people suggested that he wanted to find out about these rumors that he was about to be replaced as the pilot's lead singer. Rumors that eventually turned out to be true, but we will get to that. On October 1st, 1996, in the very same place the Stone Temple Pilots held that awful press conference that previous April, where they announced that Scott Weiland was out of the band, STP declared that everyone was fit and ready to rock. Here's what Scott Weiland had to say at that press conference. We haven't toured a couple of years in the States, and we have made some great music. We've had some hard times, but we're really looking forward to playing together. I really feel like a young kid. I don't mean to sound cheesy or anything, but it's an important thing to me to have these guys in my life, and, you know, it's a relationship. It's not just about the band and business. A six-week road trip was laid out, beginning on November 4th in Los Angeles. Wyland was to be accompanied by a guardian and was required to meet a nightly curfew. It was also decided that in the interest of keeping things simple, no international borders would be crossed. I mean, can you imagine the hassle involved in getting someone like Wyland through customs? Things continued to get better. On October 29, 1996, a judge dropped all cocaine and heroin charges against Scott. He was satisfied that Wyland had successfully completed the course of drug treatment prescribed by the court and was now free to go. By the fifth show in the tour, you would have never known that STP had been inactive for so long. Wyland looked and sounded great, easily lasting through a set that included 20 songs over more than two hours. And the rest of the band, man, they were sounding tight and fresh. By the time a Christmas break came up after a December 14th show in Cleveland, people were feeling really really good. It had been a fantastic six weeks. So everything was fine, right? Uh, no, 
In fact, things were about to fall apart again. Right at the end of the six-week tour, something went very wrong. First, a New Year's show in Anchorage, Alaska was canceled without explanation. Then, two more shows scheduled for the first week in January in Hawaii were also blown out. More than 30,000 people had been expecting to see STP over those gigs. And from the band? Nothing but silence for almost a week. Finally, on January 6, 1997, STP's manager Steve Stewart issued one of those statements. Scott has made the band aware that he was having problems again and is taking care of himself at this point. He's safe. He hasn't been arrested. He wasn't picked up. But he's in a situation where he's getting care. The band is still together. They haven't broken up and no one's been fired. What actually had happened is that Scott had called Dean DeLeo at home on December the 29th. He confessed that he had fallen off the wagon. Hard. And the following day, December 30th, and on his own volition, Wyland checked into rehab once again. Now, in case anybody is keeping score, this was the 13th time he had entered rehab in the last three years. But this time, he swore he was going to get well once and for all. Meanwhile, the other three guys could do nothing but be frustrated at this new roadblock. And things have been going so well. Tiny Music had jumped 78 spots on the album charts in a month because of the tour. They were making up for a lot of lost time and money. And now their singer was being sent to rehab for an undetermined amount of time? Now what? Well, maybe it was time to go to Plan B. After a show in Toronto on May 25, 1997, the rumors were that the Stone Temple Pilots were finished for good. All right, so now what? Well, for Scott, it was time for a solo album. Given his stature as part of a multi-platinum band, his record company didn't flinch when he said he wanted to make a solo album. With a little help from Daniel Lanois, he wrote and recorded 12-bar blues. He called it Artistic Time Away from STP. Scott played everything himself. The record was far from being any kind of a hit, but it did show a side of Scott that few people knew existed, and the reviews were very kind, effusive even. Here's a track that tried to be a single but failed. And, uh, oh, that's Cheryl Crow on guitar. Scott Weiland taking some pretty interesting creative risks with his 1998 solo album, 12-Bar Blues. You know, this is actually a pretty fine record as long as you go into it not expecting it to be an STP album. It was released in May of 1998, at which point Scott had been clean and sober for six whole months. He spoke candidly of his drug problems, declaring that he had spent over $6 million on drugs between 1994 and early 1998. His new management company was making sure that Weiland was going to his Narcotics Anonymous meetings, and as far as anybody could tell, he wasn't taking anything stronger than coffee. While Scott was making 12-bar blues, the other three-quarters of STP went off and made an album under the name Talk Show with a singer named David Coots. It also didn't do very well, selling maybe 60,000 copies, and it did not get the good reviews that 12-bar blues got either. Meanwhile, Scott formed another band, Scott Weiland and the Action Girls. Uh, no women in the band, by the way. And other offers started coming in. 
There was talk about working on a movie soundtrack, maybe scoring some TV shows, and maybe even doing a little acting. Things were starting to look great again. Hit Parader magazine even published a story under the headline, Scott Weiland in Full Control. But then came Monday, June 1st, 1998. Two weeks after the release of his solo album, and one day before he was supposed to play a gig in New York City, Weiland was busted for drugs. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, cops picked him up coming out of a building known to house drug dealers. Wald House, number 20, Avenue D, Manhattan's Lower East Side. The cops had the place staked out for any and all comers, and when Weiland came out of the building, they pounced. They found 10 decks of heroin, $10 packages of smack that were worth about $100 apiece. The arresting officer was heartbroken. He was a huge STP fan and had been following Weiland's story in the press. He had no idea that he'd be the one to send him back to jail. Weiland was told to appear back in that New York City court on July 31st. But then he disappeared. As soon as he was out on bail, he was gone. Then it got even weirder because of something that was happening on the West Coast. A Los Angeles Superior Court judge named Larry Fiddler was assigned to the Weiland case, and one of the conditions he imposed on Scott was that he appear at court hearings every so often. This was a way for the judge to make sure that Weiland was staying clean. Weiland missed the first hearing on June 11th, but he had an excuse. He was in a drug rehab facility. His second appearance was scheduled for early June, but he didn't show up. Where's your client? Judge Fiddler thundered at Michael Nassatier, Wyland's attorney. I don't know, Judge. Nobody knows. Nassatier was nervous about Wyland, and this is the guy who represented Robert Downey Jr. through all his drug trials. When Wyland didn't present himself that day, the judge issued a $250,000 warrant for Wyland's arrest. This was bad. This was 9.15 on the morning of Thursday, July 9, 1998. The last time anyone saw Wyland was about two hours later. He was seen on the steps of the Los Angeles County Courthouse smoking cigarettes and answering a few questions. He was supposed to go inside to face the music, but by all accounts he never did. While standing outside the courthouse, he heard about the warrant. He knew that he'd be arrested the second he foot inside, so he vanished. Again, this is July 9, 1998. A continent-wide APB was put out for his arrest. No one knew where he was, and if they did, they sure weren't talking. Scott's manager and Scott's lawyer refused to say anything. Wyland was on the lam for almost 13 days. At 6.30 p.m. on Tuesday, July 22, 1998, he was arrested at 6th and Burlington Street near downtown Los Angeles. And before you ask, yes, cops found drugs on him. Here's the weird thing, too. The police weren't looking for him because of that arrest warrant. They picked him up because he was simply buying drugs. Wyland spent the night in jail before being released on $250,000 bail at 10.22 the next day. This only complicated the coast-to-coast -coast thing. Wyland was up on drug felony charges in both California and New York. That meant he had court dates and hearings on the West Coast and on the East Coast. And that meant his lawyers had to do a lot of pleading and bargaining with the courts over timing. The first problem was a July 31st date in New York over that rest on June 1st. Wyland's New York attorney, Robert Kalina, who worked with rap artists like Biggie Smalls and Run DMC, successfully convinced the court that Wyland was unable to appear because he was, in fact, in rehab again in California. 
Judge Thomas Farber and District Attorney Christine Hatfield agreed to put things off until November 4, 1998. Wyland stayed in rehab for another four months, and the whole time he was there, he knew he faced jail time if convicted. Up to a year, in fact. When November 4th rolled around, he was granted a continuance, which pushed his court date back to December the 10th. At the time, Wyland weighed 148 pounds. Not a lot for a guy a shade under six feet. His court case was then pushed to January 22nd, 1999, then February 16th, 1999. So why all the delays? Well, because on the West Coast, Wyland was in trouble with Judge Fiddler again. On Friday, January 15, 1999, Scott was picked up in Los Angeles on a probation violation and was once again thrown in jail. He had actually voluntarily appeared in court to have his driver's privileges amended, but that's when the court discovered the parole violation. Scott had failed to provide to his parole officer a urine sample to prove that he was still clean. Wyland was in jail from Friday night until Wednesday morning, and after a big scolding from Judge Fiddler, Wyland was sent back to rehab again. Then back to New York. Wyland finally made his drug charge appearance on February 16th, and his plea? Guilty. That was in exchange for no jail time and on the condition that he stay out of trouble for one full year. Any screw-ups, and Wyland would be sentenced to 30 days at Rikers Island. And believe me, nobody wants to be sent to Rikers Island. When Sid Vicious was sent there on drug charges in early 1979, he was gang-raped. An interesting thing about this court appearance was that he was accompanied by Mary Forsberg, a model, and apparently Wyland's new girlfriend. Meanwhile, there was more Stone Temple Pilots rumors, and this time, they were all good. Very good. More on that in a moment. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. This is part two of a long, in-depth look at the life and death of Scott Weiland. We're at the point in the late 1990s where Weiland was ping-ponging between L.A. and New York and between jail and rehab. Finally, he was relocated to a halfway house before being declared clean and fit for release. Then came a call from SDP's Dean DeLeo. Look, we've got something special here. Our time apart has proven that. We need to keep building a legacy. You want to get back together and make another proper rock record? Out of options, Scott Weiland said yes. And just like that, STP was back in business. For a while, anyway. Here's Robert, Dean, and Eric on talk show, their aborted band, Weiland's solo album, and what was coming next. I think after the talk show thing, I think the talk show record was really therapeutic for, for all of us to make, as well as, you know, Scott's record was... For him, I think it, you know, it, it, it taught us a lot and we came up, you know, off that record and felt like, hey, that was, that was, we, we learned, we learned a lot of things. I mean, one of them was chemistry. We kind of looked at each other in a different way and kind of thought, you know, this is what we mean to each other. And, and sometimes it takes that to, to realize that. This brings us to February, 1999. STP entered the studio with producer Brendan O'Brien to start work on a fourth album. The very first song they tackled was called Down. Nice to meet you, nice to know me, what's the message, where are you shouting me, have you waited, hello town now. 
Down, a single from the Stone Temple Pilots' fourth album, cleverly entitled Number Four. It was released on October 26, 1999. But leading up to its release, things had gone back to the old ways. On March 16th, Judge Fiddler received a positive progress report on Wyland. Later that day, there was a surprise gig at the Viper Room in Los Angeles, and there were rumors that if Lollapalooza were to be reactivated, STP would be the headliners. Then, another setback. On June 4th, Judge Fiddler received a report that Wyland was not living up to the terms of his probation. Again. The rehab facility, Impact House, had sent the judge a letter saying that Wyland had been dropped from treatment on April 16th for failing to comply with the program. What happened? Well, Wyland either failed to provide another urinalysis or drugs had been detected in a sample he did give. Judge Fiddler was not happy, but frankly, he was getting a little tired of Wyland's face, so he ordered him into another rehab facility. Meanwhile, STP was hoping to get in some shows. A gig in New York City scheduled for June 11th was canceled, and there was the matter of a show set for Las Vegas on August the 12th. Here are the other guys in the band explaining exactly what happened. That was a that was a really really freaky week, man. I'll I'll briefly tell you about it. Scott did not, did not have a court date until September 10th. Well, our show was in Las Vegas on August 12th, and the court systems in California said, "Okay, Mr. Wyland, if you want to leave the state, we want you to turn yourself in on August 13th, which was a Friday, Friday the 13th." sentenced on the 13th floor of the courthouse interesting enough really yeah trouble um so um you know if you can imagine we went from uh being a band and sharing what we love to do and scott was probably had the longest stint of sobriety under his belt in the decade and uh if if you could see the torment on his face knowing what he was facing the very next day after the band did one of its greatest gigs and we literally flew back from Vegas that next morning after having a great week's worth of rehearsal and doing this lovely show. And we watched our friend be taken away by a 200-pound bailiff, man. It was, it was the most surreal four days you'd ever want to experience. Scott was in a, in a, I wouldn't say good frame of mind, but probably the best he could. Yeah. He had someone with him 24-7, just kind of keeping him in check. I mean, this guy was tied to him for like, what, what, three weeks before that? Yeah. So Scott was in a, in a frame of mind where he, he knew what was happening. He knew what was going to happen. I think he, 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 was, he was realizing where he was going to. I think that shows in the, in the lyrics. I think that showed in that show that night that we did. Man, and, um, he was insanely great just really it was it was one of the band's finest shows yeah, i think yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the last things he said to us while we were in the room alone was uh you know i couldn't think of three other people to spend my last night of freedom with you know Is he that, had to make yeah. me cry he had to do it after the show wyland was arrested and sent to jail on Friday, September 3rd, he was sentenced to one year, stemming from that probation violation in August of 1998. Michael Nassatier, Wyland's attorney, supplied Judge Fiddler with a series of letters and testimonials from friends and drug counselors, but he didn't buy any of it. So, one year in the L.A. County Jail. Sobs broke out in the courtroom when the verdict was read. On November 13, 1999, he was arrested and sent to jail. 
Wyland spent the next months living in a dormitory. He was up at 5.30 every morning. Between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., he had to attend a series of meetings and drug counseling sessions. After supper, he had a few hours of free time before lights out at 10 o'clock. He was not allowed to listen to music. Meanwhile, the new album hit the stores. What would you do? Sour Girl, from the fourth Stone Temple Pilots album, written about his ex-wife, Janina. Uh, okay, not quite ex-wife. As of the end of 1999, the divorce still hadn't come through. Little was heard from Scott Weiland through the winter, but in January, there were rumblings that things were going well and that he was going to get out early. And he did, December 31st, 1999. On January 13, 2000, fans learned that he had been moved out of jail into a halfway house. In February, he and his girlfriend Mary were allowed to go snowboarding. On March 8, all four members of the band went to New York where they taped a special for VH1, the video channel. And by the end of the month, plans were in place for more showcase gigs, a tour, and even a pay-per-view event. There were even plans for Scott and Mary to get married in May despite, like I said, that Scott's divorce from Janina still hadn't been finalized. But, overall, everyone's feeling really, really positive. The beauty of it, I will say this, and we should probably end on this, that he, he is fully accepting responsibility for where he is. He's not saying, you know, he's not wincing or complaining or anything. He's accepting complete and full responsibility for the web he has woven. And um, I, I, believe me, it's not fun for him anymore, man. He wants to be just like you and I. All great, right? Yeah, no. Back in a moment. More of the ongoing history of new music. The podcast edition with Alan Cross. Two hours into this profile and the ups and downs of Scott Weiland, and we're still only up to 2000. So we're going to need at least another hour if we're going to do this properly. There's still an STP reunion or two, a firing or two, another solo album, another non-STP band, and the whole Velvet Revolver thing. This is complicated. Keep up to date with what's happening in alt-rock with my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. You should get the newsletter because it's free. Email me anytime at alan at alancross.ca and watch for me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play.